So here we are coming to the end of a full day of practice together, a day and a night of practice together, and uh, really noticing a lot of appreciation for uh, the effort that you're all bringing to this, your willingness to show up, your interest, uh, the questions that we had. Uh, it's very always very inspiring to to see people with this this level of uh, commitment and interest and um, a willingness to engage with this exploration of Dharma. So appreciating you all for that. <clears throat> and I wonder how you're doing now, 24 plus hours into the retreat. How is, How are these hearts and minds this evening and what your day has been like, uh, what the succession of present moments have revealed to you. So I hope that there have been you know, some moments uh, of magic and enjoyment being uh, touched by the, the beauty of the place or uh, maybe experience or insights that you've had or things that have been said that have really uh, felt meaningful and useful to you. And then no doubt there's also been times of uh, frustration, discomfort, irritation, maybe wondering what am I doing here, thinking of the other things I could be doing, you know. And the, uh, life is a, a constant um, flow between these kinds of experiences. You know, there, so there are some experiences that would be happy to have more of and some that we might rather have done without. So we've been practicing today with uh, mostly with what the Buddha called the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, developing our ability to stay with the uh, knowing the body in the body, knowing the physical experience of the body as it's happening staying grounded in the body and in the breath to see uh, what's going on. And this is the foundation of anything that we, that we notice in our practice. That's why it's known as the, the first foundation of mindfulness. So you'll also have been aware of feelings and, and thoughts, no doubt, but these are happening within the framework of the body and perhaps as you've been attending to the body then you, you actually get to uh, feel the physical experience of thinking and to notice the, the emotions uh, more in, a, in an embodied sort of way. So just tonight, wanting to uh, reflect a bit further on you know, what, what can we wake up to in the present moment in a way that is uh, freeing for this heart and mind? So the other night I went to a, a talk um, by my first teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, who is uh, he's in his 80s now, and he's, he's based in Thailand, but he was visiting the monastery where I... Uh, used to live with him he's just there for a, a couple of weeks and he was giving some evening talks in the temple and he said uh, I don't like calling this a talk so it's not a talk it's a reflection and actually I noticed on our timetable I think it says Dharma reflection 
And he was saying that the purpose of a reflection is to um, point something out to you, to hold up a sort of mirror in which you can look at your own experience. So this is just uh, offering you possibilities of looking into things. And as you listen to these reflections, maybe listening listening with your hearts rather than your ears. This is what uh, Ajahn Chah, who was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, used to say. He said that when you listen to the Dharma, listen with your heart, don't listen with your ears. So I, I, mean, I have to speak in terms of um, ideas and concepts and the things that are stretched out over time, but those are, that's just concepts. But actually, it's always pointing you back to your direct experience of what's being felt, what's being known right now. Because right now is where we can investigate the, the central, most fundamental message of the Buddha about suffering and its origin and its, uh, its ending. So this isn't a teaching about an afterlife, but it's a teaching about something that's to be seen for oneself in this very moment, in this very life, and that it's uh, something that leads us onwards. So I suspect that you might have had some experience this evening of the first noble truth, the noble truth of what is called dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, uh, often translated as suffering, but as this kind of suffering is a spectrum word from the most uh, subtle level of unsatisfactoriness to um, the most acute forms of suffering. This is something that we experience in the present. So right now as you sit, you might be aware of just little areas or perhaps big areas of your experience that feel a bit like, mm, yeah, that, that feels a little bit uh, stressful or uncomfortable. It's also the place where we, we taste the freedom from that, where we, we notice actually moments of release and relief from this experience of, of stress or discomfort. But one of the things that the, the Buddha pointed out is that this is not uh, as the, this first uh, truth uh, that there is, there is unsatisfactoriness in life points out that unsatisfactoriness is not a mistake. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with us because this is our experience. This is part of the experience of being human. And he called it a noble truth. It's an ennobling uh, realization because it's something that sends us out in, in search. So actually, um, this kind of suffering is said to uh, give rise to, to faith and uh, to the unfolding of a whole um, path of investigation and, and liberation. But this moment, this lived experience that we're having right here, right now, is where we learn about the arising and the disappearance of suffering. This is where we really need to look and to see how our, where we can see how our levels of, of stress and discontent can escalate or de-escalate from moment to moment 
through the way that we engage with our present moment experience. And so this is what the second and third of the noble truths of the Dharma point to. Uh, the, the connection of uh, the arising of unsatisfactoriness with craving and with clinging. So when uh, craving arises, this is when the experience of unsatisfactoriness arises. And when craving is abandoned, unsatisfactoriness ceases. So with craving, dukkha arises. With its abandonment, dukkha ceases. And the Buddha said that the direct path to experiencing this for yourself is through the practice of mindfulness. Often he said, most particularly mindfulness of the body. But he also um, spelled out... uh, other ways of, or other, other um, what are called foundations of mindfulness that are really um, part of what we, how we, how we can um, investigate, appreciate what, what's to be woken up to in this present moment. So these four, uh, the famous teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. And these are channels on which our experience is broadcasting all the time, simultaneously. And we can choose which one we pay attention to. So we've been focusing on the first foundation on body and breath. And the other foundations are uh, feet, what are called feelings, uh, mind states, and then um, phenomena or experiences of particular kinds. And tonight I want to actually turn our attention to the second of these channels of experience, domains of experience, because it's so useful and so important to look into, because it's very closely linked to the arising escalation and maintenance of stress and distress. And this is the second, the second foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, feeling tone. The Pali word for this is Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it comes from a verb, Vedati, which means to feel and to know. And this uh, word feeling is not the same as the way that we commonly use feeling in the English language. So when the Buddha talks about feeling the feelings in the feelings, just as he talks about feeling the body in the body, he's referring to these things that we call feeling tones, which is the experience of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, or more accurately called neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience. And every aspect of our, uh, of our experience has one of these flavors. So you could imagine something, for example, that you really like to eat. If you turn your mind to your, your favorite food and just imagine that for a moment, the automatic uh, 
impression of that is something pleasant or thinking of uh, smelling roses in the garden. If I bring, the mind, bring to mind the image or the memory of a rose, there's immediately the sense of this is something pleasant. If I bring to mind a piece of chalk scraping down a blackboard, there's immediately a sense of this is unpleasant. Or maybe in our more immediate tactile experience, if you were just to feel, gently feel the skin on the back of your hand and stroke the back of your hand. Most likely, and I'm not saying that it's necessarily the case, because we all may, might have reasons why we experience things differently, but to me that's a, there's, a, there's just a, a feeling of pleasant around that. If I were to pinch my hand very tightly, you can do it till you feel a, a point where, ouch, there's an immediate sense of unpleasant. And then there are things that, and these are things that we tend to notice. We tend to notice things when they're, when they're um, really uh, obviously pleasant or unpleasant. But there's a whole uh, lot of experience that is not really clearly one thing or the other. And our response to that tends to be to zone out from it. So I was trying to think of a, a, what, something I feel really neutral or have a... Uh, very neutral impression of around here, and I was thinking of the the cars in the car park. I'm someone who's really disinterested in cars, and they don't kind of excite me one way or the other. And if I bring that image to mind, it doesn't really have you know, anything. I'm just kind of not not very interested in it. Uh, so the Buddha said that. Uh, well, he pointed out that what the untrained mind tends to do when it encounters something pleasant is it tries to hold on to it. It fears losing it or it wants to get more of it. So it tips us into a, into a strategizing about how, how we're going to hold on to this thing or how we're going to get more of it. When we encounter an unpleasant experience, we tend to react with aversion, with a sense of pushing it away or defending ourselves against it and again strategizing around that. And with neutral things, we just tend to space out. They send us back to sleep. And this is all really apparent in the case of uh, physical sensation but of course, it doesn't just apply to physical sensation. It applies to uh, emotions, mental images, thoughts. Um, all of these have a, a feeling tone. Yeah. If I bring to mind, say, um, the image of my uh, tax return letter, there's a perception of unpleasant. If I bring to mind the reservation for my summer holiday, there's a, a sense of pleasant. But what becomes really interesting is when we can hold still enough uh, with these different experiences to start to unpack them and investigate them more closely. And of course, we discover that the, the feeling tone this sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is not something that's intrinsic to the object itself. 
and that our relationship to the it, it's it's colored by our relationship to the object and many um, past factors so for instance uh, one example would be chili peppers yeah. are they a pleasant or an unpleasant experience and pleasant or unpleasant sensation a lot of that will depend on your physical makeup and your conditioning around hot and spicy food the point at which something is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or our relationship to physical effort if you did that standing like a tree posture in the in the qigong earlier today you know at what point does holding a position that requires some effort is it felt as an unpleasant experience a lot will, a lot of that will depend on your own physical body and your conditioning around uh, how much you uh, how you relate to physical challenge even the experience of, of pain or physical discomfort that I suspect, although you've been very quiet and you haven't asked questions about it, uh, that you might have experienced in your meditation, uh, to notice how pain, what we call pain, is actually a kind of bundle of experience. The word pain itself, to me, conjures up a perception of unpleasant but actually, if we, if we remove the label from a particular experience and just start exploring the sensations, perhaps you find that they're, they're not quite as clearly uh, one thing or the other thing as you thought. Sometimes intensity doesn't necessarily have to feel unpleasant. It may well do, of course. Now, I'm not saying that, that you know, that it... It's, it's never unpleasant, it doesn't exist. But as we scrutinize things more carefully, they're not quite as, uh, always quite as they seem. And certainly that they, they tend to change. There's also something uh, that feels pleasant about what's familiar to us, even if it's unpleasant. Uh, or we, we think that that we think that we like something and actually as we pay closer attention to it we discover that we don't or vice versa so in mindfulness training there's this famous raisin exercise which some of you if you've taught or, or done mindfulness courses where you ask to eat a raisin very slowly and people suddenly discover that they actually like raisins when they thought that they hated them, or they discover that actually they thought they liked them and actually they found it really unpleasant. So much of our experience is just uh, coloured by our expectations. The other, the other night, also when I, I visited the monastery, I ended up sleeping in a, in a tent out in the, in the field, there were a lot of people camping at the monastery and it's a patch of the field where there are lots of, I think, they're moles or little voles that tunnel under the ground. And I was lying in my tent and I suddenly felt this thing kind of hitting against my pillow and scrabbling around and there was this kind of bumping up under the ground sheet under the tent. And I... I immediately felt this sort of sense of rising panic. Oh my goodness, there's a, you know, there's a mouse chewing through into my, into my tent. 
And then I just kind of paused with that. So there's this real sense of, oh my goodness, this is something unpleasant. I really, what am I going to do? I'm going to panic, there's a mouse in my tent. And then just realising, this is just this little creature, sort of a bit confused, because all these people have come and pitched tents on top of their burrows, um, scurrying around, probably trying to find a place to come up, and it's trying to get up under my ground sheet. And actually, you know, what's not to like with this with this little creature, so I just and anyway, it was there was no way it was going to chew chew its way through my ground sheet, but there was just this sort of percussion underneath the pillow. So I just sort of knocked and said, "Hello, maybe you better find another place to go." But something that you know, we have this immediate reaction: of, "Oh my goodness!" and and actually we pause, and it turns into something else. And the things that we, the things that seem quite neutral to us, as we as we start to investigate them, often they reveal actually uh, something different. Often, actually, becoming they become more pleasant as we start to investigate them. And then the the, the degree of intensity of pleasant and unpleasant changes too. Yeah. So actually, the way we experience different sounds when we're sitting and meditating. Perhaps you've noticed this, that you might have heard sounds around you that immediately you feel are pleasant and others that you feel are unpleasant. And then just depending on uh, what else is going on in the moment or uh, you know, um, how, how the heart and the mind are feeling, that actually the degree of, of pleasantness or unpleasantness changes. So the Buddha said that this experience of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral is like winds that blow from different directions. Hot winds, cold winds, dry winds, wet winds, all blowing from different directions. Or uh, bubbles, just like bubbles on the surface of water. They, they arise and they kind of pop. They have no substantial, separate, solid existence. They're the product of conditions. But what happens when they arise is we kind of latch onto them and we tend to meet them with reactivity. This is where the the craving and the clinging of the second and third noble truths arise. The Buddha said that no, the, a person who hasn't really investigated these things, who hasn't uh, studied and practice doesn't know of any alternative way to escape from an unpleasant feeling except through looking for some um, sense pleasures, some fix. So this is the sort of reaching for the biscuit tin type way of uh, dealing with an unpleasant experience. I don't know if any of you might have listened to the thought for the day the other day when Vishvapani from the um, Triratna Buddhist order was talking about exactly this, about uh, how we try to get away from unpleasant experience by immediately seeking something pleasant. But this tends not to solve the problem. It just perpetuates the habit of looking for some, always looking for something new for a quick fix. It's not something that's liberating or onward leading. And at, it, at its worst, it just keeps us in a harmful addiction, or it leads us into actual harmful addictions, or it keeps us in the habit of feeding the tendency to crave for things. Or 
something unpleasant happens and we try to solve it in ways that don't work. So we maybe get into conflicts with other people or with ourselves. We just add aversion onto something that's already unpleasant. So the Buddha had a, a, a famous simile in which he, he likened this to uh, being shot with a dart and then uh, responding by shooting another arrow. So this is, uh, I'm going to read you actually uh, what it says in the, in the sutta that this comes from about the dart of painful feeling. So this is addressed to monks and it's all in a, the masculine form and it's complicated to transpose it. So you just have to uh, hear it in a, in a more inclusive way perhaps. So this, these are from the earliest discourses of the Buddha that we have, and this is, this is an anthology uh, in the Buddha's words from uh, a collection from the uh, early discourses of the Buddha. He says, Monks, when the untrained ordinary person experiences a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart and then strike him immediately afterward with a second dart so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the untrained ordinary person experiences a painful feeling, they feel two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. While experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion toward painful feeling lies behind this. So this is what Chris was talking about when he said that we're always practicing something and as we practice it, we reinforce it. So every time we practice aversion, we feed the tendency to feel aversion. While experiencing painful feeling, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. When he seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling lies behind this. He doesn't understand as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. Monks, when the instructed, well-taught uh, practitioner person experiences a painful feeling, they do not sorrow, grieve or lament. They do not weep, beating their breast and become distraught. This person feels one feeling, a bodily one and not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, but they wouldn't strike him immediately afterward with a second dart. So that man would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when the well-trained noble person experiences a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one and not a mental one. While experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors no aversion toward it. 
since he harbors no aversion toward painful feeling, the underlying tendency towards aversion, the habit of, of uh, aversion, doesn't lie behind this. While experiencing painful feeling, he doesn't seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because he knows of an escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. Since he doesn't seek delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for ple pleasant feeling doesn't lie behind this. This person understands as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. So this is what we normally do when we, um, when we suffer an unpleasant or we experience an unpleasant feeling, we react towards it. There's an equation which I find quite helpful in this instance, uh, which says that suffering is equal to pain times our resistance to it. The more we try to resist what's happening, the more it intensifies. And similarly, a, 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 a parallel equation is that frustration equals pleasure times grasping. The more we try to hold on to, to grasp at a pleasure, the more we start to um, destroy that pleasant experience. So you're probably familiar with the William Blake poem about um, he who kisses a joy as it fl he who binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. And he who kisses a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So this sense of being able to uh, kiss the pleasures of life without binding ourselves to them and thereby destroying them. So the Buddha also made, uh, so he said that these, these are the feelings that are to be known as they're experienced, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. And he also made a further distinction between um, what are called worldly and unworldly uh, feelings. So worldly, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feelings are connected with the senses. Unworldly ones are connected, um, we could say that they are, they are the spiritual qualities that actually lead to uh, a disentanglement from this um, predicament of suffering. They're the, the sorts of feelings that uh, lead us onwards in this practice. So typically this is described as renunciation, which we could say is things which aren't, ad aren't addictive, that don't uh, stick us into this round of seeking more sense gratification. So this sense of worldly and unworldly can sound a bit pious and off-putting, but it's supposed to be really pragmatic and it's worth exploring. So some examples of unworldly pleasant feelings would be actually things like a uh, sense of unconditional goodwill that we're cultivating when we cultivate metta. This feeling kindness 
unconditional kindness has a pleasant feeling tone to it, but it's not one that kind of sticks us to things. Feeling compassion has a pleasant feeling tone to it. This is interesting, even when we have the unpleasant experience of being in contact with suffering, if our, if our mind can shift to an attitude of compassion, it's already, um, this, is, this is a liberation from that kind of unpleasant feeling. Altruistic joy, uh, what's called mudita, the third of the, these uh, Brahma Viharas of these qualities also has a pleasant feeling tone to it. If the joy is a, a non-possessive, a non-possessive joy, and there's nothing that's going to stick us to things. And equanimity also has a, a pleasant feeling tone to it. There's something cool and fresh about the mind that can stay in balance with conditions. Another unworldly, pleasant experience might be the experience of generosity. So if you think about the last time that you spontaneously found yourself doing an act of generosity, uh, this is a kind of pleasure that leads us away from clinging and grasping, leads us away from entanglement, leads to peace. Similarly, if you're appreciating being a recipient of generosity, of spontaneous spontaneous generosity or um, the kind of pleasure we get from uh, reflecting on our own commitment to harmlessness the what's called the bliss of blamelessness this is a, this is an unworldly type of pleasant experience or the pleasure of a, a stable and collected mind pleasures of concentration, the pleasures of actually seeing something as it really is. Sometimes even if, even if something's, you know, a, an unpleasant truth, there's a kind of relief that comes to actually, oh, I get that now. And all these kinds of pleasures actually lead us onwards in the practice rather than, um, than getting us enmeshed in... Um, in suffering and distress. An example of an unworldly, unpleasant feeling would be the sort of uh, healthy remorse when we, that when we feel, as we were saying earlier, we, we actually uh, recognize that something, something's at fault and we actually um, feel remorse over that. Maybe realizing that something we did was... Uh, harmful or stingy or unkind and, and the, the, this kind of unpleasant experience of that recognition actually leads us to make a determination to do it differently next time. Unworldly neutral feelings is about experiencing things not with just a sense of numbing, not with a sense of numbing out, but with a sense of genuine equanimity. And as I said before, equanimity itself actually begins to, it, it, it tends towards the pleasant. It has a pleasant uh, flavor to it. So there are actually far more um, pleasant unworldly experiences than there are unpleasant ones. So the, the Buddhist psychology, uh, 
Abhidharma, which is the sort of um, the psychological analysis of the Buddha's teachings that came a bit after these discourses uh, were recorded, analyzes all, analyzes all the possible states of mind that we can have, and it says that there are far more instances and types of unworldly happiness and very few um, instances of unworldly unhappiness. And in the Buddha's disciples, in, despite the, the, uh, the turning away from sense pleasures, were famous for how happy they appeared to be. But the Buddha wasn't saying that we should only have unworldly feelings, because experiencing these feelings, Vedana, is normal. Yeah. We live in mammalian bodies and they, they are designed to experience things as pleasant and unpleasant. So even after the Buddha was fully awakened, he suffered from backache and stomach upsets and sometimes had to ask other people to give the teachings for him because uh, his backache was too bad. We all have recoil reflexes you know if we touch something that's scalding hot we immediately withdraw from it and this is this is a survival mechanism this is natural we're supposed to have it but the thing is that not all these uh triggers that we have through our evil uh, through our evolution actually function in our best interests so sometimes, yes, the, there's an instant response to unpleasant experience that's about basic survival. But many times there's actually a value to tolerating an unpleasant experience, to even allowing it and letting it be. So Ajahn Chah, who I mentioned before, he said that there's, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, and the suffering that leads to more suffering. And if you don't have the former, you will surely have the latter. So the question is, how, how do we practice with Vedana? What's the strategy with, for working with Vedana, with these feeling tones? And the Buddha says that our practice with them is to know them as they're happening to be aware when we're experiencing a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling. To actually also have an interest, is this something, is this, is this one of these worldly, sensory, pleasant or unpleasant feelings? Or is it actually something that's connected with our practice, with our spiritual development that's onward leading? And if we know these feeling tones as they're arising, it creates a gap in the chain of reactivity. You know, so we don't automatically have to act on them. So we can start to uh, de-escalate uh, rather than escalate the accumulation of stress. We don't have to fire the second arrow and the third arrow and the fourth arrow. So as we, as we practice our mindfulness, as we sit in meditation, or also as we're going around in our daily life, we can spend some time maybe focusing in on this channel of experience. 
one of the things we can notice is how rapidly these feeling tones change if we just watch them. And if we notice how changeable they are, how much like just winds that are passing through or bubbles on the surface of a stream, we're much less likely to get hooked. And we can do this, or my, my suggestion is that we do this in a relaxed way. You know, it's not possible to catch the feeling tone of every single experience. Okay. Yes, so I'm not suggesting that you need to be aware of the feeling tone of every single experience, but you can have this option of maybe, um, you know, paying some attention to this channel and, or otherwise just beginning to notice the really obvious ones, taking an interest in this this dimension of an experience as you're having having it. And sometimes it can be interesting to practice refraining uh, from acting on, say, a pleasant thought. So you might be going off to do walking meditation and the rather pleasant image of the nice cup of tea you had last time pops into mind. Okay, so that's a pleasant Vedana memory of a, a nice cup of tea I had this morning. And we have a choice there. We can either immediately latch onto that and think, okay, I'm going to go and make myself a cup of tea. And that's one thing we can do. Or we can just uh, allow the pleasant uh, impression of a cup of tea to come into the mind and not act on it and just see where it goes. And just notice that pretty soon that will have left and something else will be arising in experience. And that's a, a, a really trivial example, but it actually, you know, therein lies a, a path to a lot of freedom. If we don't need to uh, have our actions and our responses dictated by um, these flashes of pleasant and unpleasant. Maybe an unpleasant thought comes to mind and we, we immediately think, I need to fix this or solve this. Maybe some habitual worry or habitual piece of um, self-deprecation or self-doubt comes up. We could just notice our unpleasant thought and just let it be and then let that dissolve again. Or we pick it up and we start discussing it with ourselves, arguing, arguing about it with ourselves and trying to think our way out of it. And this is often really not very productive. We're just reinforcing the belief in the substantiality of that. 
And then we can, we can learn to watch the conditioning process of our thoughts and reactions as they unfold. Yeah. A lot of our thinking is, is just a, a rationalization of our likes and dislikes, of our latching on to pleasant and unpleasant experience. So you know, maybe some, we have a, a whiff of unpleasant experience as something that happens in the dining room or the kitchen it's just an unpleasant experience or um, that thing that I like ran out before I got to it. And then we can spend half a day thinking about how things could be done differently at Gaia House so that I don't have to experience that unpleasant feeling. You know? I, I spent once spent a whole winter retreat in a monastery thinking about how they should... Uh, have separate bowls to put the dessert in from the main course because my jelly had melted over my vegetables. <laughs> yeah, it's just one one little experience of unpleasant, and then we create this whole uh, this whole production around it, or we we create ourselves into somebody who has to have certain things, who likes and dislikes that. I can't stand this. I can't can't stand it when people bring cups of tea to me in bed in the morning or I absolutely have to have that and we can we can form an identity around these things this is part of our personality how we make ourselves interesting but this path invites us to to step back from all that in order to see just what's happening and how we how we condition our own distress in the moment So one of the big switches, possibly the biggest trip switch to all these different experiences of, of um, afflictive states of mind in practice is this step into being genuinely interested in what's going on. If we can be genuinely interested in experience without aversion, without judgment, that sense of interest and curiosity and you can check this out for yourself it has a pleasant feeling tone there's a switch right there so if we find ourselves experiencing uh, any kind of afflictive mind state like what what we often call the five hindrances of craving and aversion doubt um, sluggishness or uh, dullness restlessness or worry Rather than getting lost inside them, if we can switch to bringing some curiosity to the experience, that's actually energizing. And that sense of bright curiosity has a pleasant feeling to it. We're already uh, moving ourselves into something more skillful. So as we learn to, to notice pleasant and unpleasant without reacting on it, we get more, we, we discover a sense of empowerment and an ability to just hold our reactivity in awareness with skill and compassion. So we can also be mindful, we can, we can catch things before we react, but we can also be mindful of and uh, hold in awareness these patterns of reactivity as they happen and start to understand them. And as we do that, we have more, more choice. So we don't become contracted around one thread in the tapestry of this moment, but we can stay in the flow of it.
we've been talking about grounding and resourcing and the, the ability when we're feeling something really difficult to actually uh, notice, to be available to notice the things that feel okay in this moment, to have, have those in attention as well. So this gesture of touching the earth, of resourcing ourselves, the Buddha, um, it's not, oh yes, that is the earth-touching mudra. So this is when the Buddha was assailed by doubt or temptation or challenged, he would, he touched the earth and asked the the earth to be witness to his his awakening. Uh, We connect ourselves with a sort of larger, a larger circuit, if you like, of resourcedness. So the most interesting question maybe to explore in practice is can you have unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant feeling tones without suffering? So you can notice this and find out. I think much of our suffering is in the fear of the unpleasant, not in the experience of the unpleasant itself. It's what we create around the unpleasant and how we respond to it. And when we really see and understand these Vedana, these feeling tones and the way they hook us and we know how to let it go, this is the freedom. This is freedom. This is is the taste of Nibbāna. So the question always in this moment is how much much of our suffering in this moment is optional? What can you leave behind outside the door with your shoes? We sometimes uh, get into uh, a head spin of concepts trying to figure out, well, what, what would it be like to be fully enlightened? What is the end of this path? Does an enlightened person feel any pain or do they never feel any pain? And we can have lots of views and opinions and theories about uh, what it really means to be free. What is this cessation of suffering that the Buddha told was available to us? And I just want to end with a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, which I find... uh, really helpful around this. He says, do not feel as though you have to embrace any particular teacher's interpretation of total cessation of nirvana, or even that you have to come quickly to your own understanding of cessation. Instead, let it be an open question, a mystery, and live the question. What's possible in the way of freedom for me right now, in this very moment, just as I am? So let's just listen back into the silence. 
letting the words fade away. taking up whatever's been useful from these reflections, maybe exploring it in your practice. And if anything feels unhelpful, just letting it go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.